Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have given to us for the warm temperature. Thank you for helping us with the warmth in this building today. Thank you for this wonderful facility in which we are so privileged to meet. Thank you, Lord, that you do meet all of our needs and that you are a caring, loving, holy, righteous, just God. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us now as we look at it and uh, talk about a very difficult doctrine. Help us to truly want to know what your word has to say, not the dogmas and doctrines and traditions of men, but your word alone is our final authority for faith and practice. Help me, Lord, to speak on this difficult doctrine with a loving spirit. Teach the truth in love. And we will thank you for what you do accomplish here, for we pray in the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in the second part of lesson number 71 in your Life of Christ books, and we are also going to be looking at continuing our look at John chapter 6, the Bread of Life sermon. Today we will be focusing on verses 53 to 58. I'm not sure if we'll get to the end of the chapter. We'll see how the time goes. When the Lord Jesus finished telling the crowd and the Jewish leaders that the Father's way to enter into eternal life was for man to place his faith in the Son who came from heaven to give his flesh for the life of the world, the opposition of the Jews turned from that of murmuring to increased opposition. We're told in John 6, verse 42, that when the Jews, remember that that means the religious leaders who had joined the uh, people in the synagogue there in Capernaum, when they heard the Lord's claims, additional claims to deity, and when they heard his very strange to them words about eating his uh, flesh or eating the bread that he said was himself, we were told in verse 52 that they began to strive among themselves. Some probably said that he was just totally mad that he was out of his mind and he should be stoned to death for his blasphemy. He had claimed over and over again to actually be equal with God. Others may have argued that he was trying to teach some new pagan cannibalistic kind of religion, while others probably figured out that he was speaking uh, spiritually. He was speaking allegorically or or, uh, in metaphors, but they still weren't quite sure exactly what it was that he was trying to tell them. What no one in that crowd probably understood was that he was speaking of the sacrificial atonement for sin that he himself was going to present in on the very next Passover. Remember, this is the time of the second Passover in his earthly ministry. So one year from this time, he would actually serve as the Passover lamb. I don't think anybody in the crowd that day understood that. They did not understand that their long-awaited Messiah had to first be a suffering servant before he could then and would reign then as king. So we um, are going to continue our study of the Bread of Life sermon. This is actually our fourth lesson now in this study. We've looked at the Bread of Life revealed in verses 26 to 40. We talked about the, the Bread of Life resented the murmuring of the Jews, the first message of Jesus, the misunderstanding of the Jews, and now we are getting, in today's lesson, to the second message of Jesus in this second part. And this second message is in response not to their murmuring, as it was his first message, but now it is in response to their misunderstanding and their striving among themselves as to what it was he had been talking about. So let's look at what he says to them in this second message then. And for this, we'll look at John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. Very, actually very simple words in the scripture, but words which have been so terribly twisted over the years. All right, starting at verse 53, it says, this is right after the Jews began to, were striving among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He answers in verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He'd said that quite a few times, hadn't he? We've already looked at that, how many times he said he would be the one who would raise people on resurrection day. All right, verse 55, he says, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of of this bread shall live forever. Okay, what we want to do in our discussion of these verses is to present the two ways that there are to interpret them. There is the figurative way to understand that he is speaking in spiritual terms. And there is the literal way of interpretation. Now, because the scripture, the word of God, the Bible, is in this Bible study, in this church, and we've given you a statement of faith regarding this fact, because the scripture, the Bible, is our final authority for both both faith and practice, and not the doctrines, not the dogmas, not the traditions of any group of men or any church, no matter how big that church is or how influential that church is, Our final authority is the word of God. It's the scripture. And so, therefore, we are going to use the scripture to demonstrate which of these two interpretations is the correct one, the spiritual interpretation or the literal interpretation. First of all, I want to talk about the spiritual interpretation. To interpret this passage allegorically, we would conclude that Jesus was teaching spiritual truths by the use of metaphors. And he did this a lot in his teaching. A metaphor is simply saying, like, um, he is as sly as a, what, a fox. Or that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Now, everybody understands that Israel isn't really a literal apple in the, in the eyes of God. The Lord often taught using metaphors. He spoke of himself as light, didn't he? He spoke of himself as a door. I am the door, he said. He, scripture calls him a rock. He spoke of his followers as sheep. Now, are we really sheep? We might be as dumb as sheep, but we don't go around going bah, bah, and we're not covered with wool. At least some of us aren't. He spoke of the word of God as seed and himself as a, the sower. He spoke of himself as a vine. And what are you and I? Branches. We're branches. In fact, The Lord's parables, all of his parables, are spiritual truths taught by way of allegories and metaphors. Metaphors. (laughs) Even in this sermon, has he not referred to himself as the bread of life? And who who pictures Jesus as a big loaf of of barley bread? I mean, we just don't. We understand that he's speaking figuratively. So here, the spiritual interpretation is simply that Jesus was saying to the people gathered before him, In the synagogue in Capernaum, he was saying basically this. Just as your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, and as some of you experienced yesterday, you know, when I fed you bread miraculously from one small boy's lunch, just as those things are true, you must eat me, the true bread of life. You must take me within your innermost being, so that I can give you eternal life. You cannot simply look at bread and stay alive, right? You have to actually eat it. You have to ingest it. You must take it into yourselves. He's saying, likewise with me. You cannot just stand there and look at me and watch my miracles and follow me around, you know, follow me back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and want to put your own man-made crown on my head. Instead, what you must do is you must receive me personally into your heart, into your soul, into your innermost being. I cannot simply give you eternal life if you keep me on the outside. I'm standing at the the door of your heart and I'm knocking, but guess what you have to do? You have to open the door and invite me in. You have to crown me the king of your heart and your life. And then... I can give you eternal life. So the spiritual interpretation states that when Jesus here spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and when he initiated the Lord's Supper, which he does a year from now, not here in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. But when he did talk about the Lord's Supper, he was merely using the process of, of physical digestion 
to teach a spiritual truth. Like when he talked to Nicodemus, he was not speaking of a man literally being physically born all over again, or as when he offered the Samaritan woman at the well living water, which he said, you know, once she uh, partook of his living water, she would never thirst again. Of course she would thirst again physically, right? And like when he said that the one who comes to him here in John chapter 6, verse 35, when he said the one who comes to him would never know never hunger, and the one who believes on him would never know never thirst. Obviously, he was speaking figuratively, because you and I, as true believers, we do hunger and thirst. I'm I'm getting hungry thinking about all the food over there right now. We obviously physically hunger and, and thirst again. So his eating and his drinking in this passage that we just read correspond to hungering and thirsting, which obviously is talked about in spiritual terms and corresponds to coming to him and believing in him. So that's the spiritual interpretation. It's pretty clear cut. And I think it's pretty obvious and it's pretty simple. However, as with so much of scripture... This John chapter 6 passage, as well as the passages that do deal with the Lord's Supper. Now, this passage here does not deal with the Lord's Supper. But over in Matthew 26, verses 23 to 28, if you want to flip over there and just review those verses, you've all read them many times. It does have to do with the Lord's Supper. It's Jesus speaking on the night of, of his arrest to his disciples And also over in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27, all of of these scriptures have been used to support, taking a literal interpretation of them, they have been used to support a dogma or a teaching, which is called transubstantiation. And this teaching of transubstantiation, how many of you have heard that word before? Okay starts with a capital T. They put a capital T on it. That teaching is at the heart and soul of Roman Catholicism. And if anybody knows what they're talking about, I do, because it was also taught in the church of my childhood. This is what I was raised with, is the dogma of transubstantiation. And I come out of the Orthodox faith, either Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, or I think there's some other forms of the Orthodox faith. And, this may surprise you, it is even taught in some Protestant churches, although in a much less pronounced manner, and probably some of those people who attend these Protestant churches don't have a clue about it. But it is taught in this way. They say that the true, real blood and body of Christ are somehow present in a unique way in, with, and under the bread and wine. And those Protestant churches which do teach the dogma of transubstantiation do not teach that this is the way of working out one's salvation. But they do, several of them, do believe that in some mysterious way the actual blood and body of Christ is present in the elements of the bread and wine. So at the very heart, and mostly because it's hard to say Catholicism and the Orthodox faith, I'm going to mostly be talking about Catholicism. At the very heart of Roman Catholicism is the sacrifice of the Mass, in which it is declared, quote, this is right out of the Vatican II Council of Roman Catholicism, the sacrifice of the Mass Mass, it is declared that the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated, end of quote. No, I'm sorry, continuing the quote. They say the mass is the source and the summit of the whole of the church's worship and of the Christian life. So, that's end of quote from Vatican II. And Vatican II took place in the 1960s. It was a big council of all the Roman Catholic theologians getting together and discussing their dogmas and their doctrines. So the mass is at the heart of Catholicism, and the dogma, or what they call the miracle of transubstantiation, is at the heart of the mass. So the heart of, of all of Catholicism is in this dogma of transubstantiation. So what is it? 
What is the teaching of transubstantiation that is important to literally millions and millions of people today across the world and down through the ages, the church age, I should say? Well, it is the supposed miracle that can only be performed by the Catholic priest, according to the Catholics, or can only be performed by the Orthodox priest, according to the Orthodox faith. It is a miracle that is said to to literally convert the elements of bread, which are also referred to as the host. Host comes from a Latin word meaning the sacrifice. So it says that the, the elements of the bread or the host or the wafer and the wine or the grape juice of Holy Communion, which is referred to as the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, that they actually convert, become, turn into the actual flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic Encyclopedia states this, quote, In the celebration of the Holy Mass, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. It is called transubstantiation. For the sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine do not remain. They no longer the substance of bread and wine, they say. But the entire substance of bread is changed into the body of Christ, and the entire substance of wine is changed into his blood. The species or outward semblance of bread and wine alone remaining. End of quote. What that last part means is that they are changed, the bread and wine are actually changed into the literal blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though those elements still look like bread and wine and taste like bread and wine and smell like bread and wine and feel like bread and wine. Kind of like I can't help but compare this, and even as a child, and I was taught this, even as a small child, I thought, that's not really Christ's body. That's a piece of bread. To me, it's, and I, I don't want, I mean, I, my heart goes out to the millions of people who are caught up in this because this is what they are taught and, and what they've grown up with, and they don't know anything different. But it's, I can't help but think of it as the emperor's new clothing. You know, the story of, well, he looks like he's naked, but everybody says he's got fine clothing on, so must be he's dressed to kill. But sure looks like he's naked to me. You know, sure looks like bread and wine, but... Here I'm told that it's become the blood and body of Jesus Christ. So I have to believe what those who know better than me say. It's the doctrine of my church, the tradition of my elders and my forefathers. So the alleged miracle remains unseen. You don't see a miracle. But you know what? Christ's miracles were always observable. When he made the lame, when he healed the lame, what did you see? You saw them get up and walk. When he cleansed a leper, the leper was clean. No more leprosy. When he gave a blind man sight, the blind man could see. When he raised the dead, they got up and walked around, right? I wonder, and as a child, I had a a sick mind. Well, I guess I still do. But I often wondered if some, you know, I knew the women in the church that baked the bread. We didn't have wafers in the Greek Orthodox Church. In, In Catholicism, they get a small round wafer. But we had actual bread, and I knew the women that baked the bread. And I often wondered, I wonder what would happen if one of those women put a little bit of arsenic into the bread and then told the priest and the rest of us, how many of us would actually believe, well, it looks like bread. She said it's got some poison in it. Will the priest still go ahead and eat it? Will we go ahead and eat it? You know what? Even though they told me it turned into the body of Christ and would be okay, I wouldn't eat it, and I guarantee you the priest wouldn't eat it either. So, you know, do they really deep down believe this? I guess some of them do. All right, that's anyway, that's just my mind thinking. Also, and, and the wine. If the wine, and in the, in the Catholic Church and in the Greek Orthodox Church, they actually use wine. Uh, if the wine really turned into the blood of Jesus Christ, then it would be okay to drink a whole lot of it because nobody would ever get drunk from it, Right? Do you think that really would happen? Mm-mm. That would be a real test if there had been a miracle. Just let the priest keep drinking the wine 
and see what if he gets a little tipsy. Uh, after the twelve, by the way, after the twelfth century, the Catholic Church began to withhold the cup from the people and just gave them the wafer. And uh, the priest himself actually drank the whole cup of the wine. Because, and they did this because they were actually afraid that someone might spill the blood of Christ. I know as a child, they, they actually held this cloth under our chin when they gave us a spoonful of the wine because they were so fearful of what to do if some of the wine dripped on our clothing or on the floor. Same thing with the bread. I was taught that it was a very dangerous thing. Children, you know, mothers, you had to be right there with your children because you didn't want them to drop a piece of the bread on the floor because you would actually be dropping the, the body of Christ on the floor. And as you can imagine, this kind of teaching can really raise some issues. Let me just read um, some of the things that they've had to discuss over the years because of this. This says in this book, adopting the idea that the elements of the Lord's Supper become the literal flesh and blood of Christ was not without its problems. Tertullian tells us that the priests took great care that no crumb should fall, lest the body of Christ be hurt. Even a crumb was believed to contain the whole Christ. In the Middle Ages, there were serious discussions as to what should be done if a person were to vomit after receiving communion, or if a dog or a mouse were by chance to eat part of God's body. At the Council of Constance, it was argued whether a man who spilled some of the blood of Christ on his beard should have his beard burned, or if the beard and the man should be destroyed by burning. It is admitted on all sides that numerous strange doctrines accompanied this idea of transubstantiation. End of quote. Interestingly, it is from the supposed miracle of transubstantiation that the expression hocus-pocus comes from. Did you know that? That's where the hocus-pocus comes from. Because when the Roman Catholic priest blesses the bread and the wine at the point when it is changed, miraculously changed, he says in Latin, hoc est corpus meus. And people who didn't know Latin would just abbreviate that and say hocus pocus. That's where it literally comes from. Now, since the priest is the only one who can change the elements of the bread and the wine, he becomes indispensable to one's salvation. And a curse was actually pronounced by the Council of Trent held in the 16th century and was reconfirmed in the 1960s at the Vatican Council II. A curse was pronounced on anyone who believes otherwise concerning this dogma of transubstantiation. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. It says, quote, If anyone saith that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, let him be anathema, which means let him be cursed, end of quote. In fact, they ordered the priests to proclaim that not only did the elements of the Mass contain flesh, bones, and nerves as part of Christ, but also, and this is a direct quote, but also a whole Christ, end of quote. The Catholic Encyclopedia says the dogma of the totality of the real presence means that in each individual species, which is talking about each little wafer or host, the whole Christ, flesh and blood, body and soul, divinity and humanity is really present, end of quote. And multitudes of people were burned at the stake for not accepting this dogma. I'm telling you, we're talking about a serious thing here. If I was living in a different century, I could be burned at the stake for what I am teaching you here today. And you likewise could be if you do not believe the literal um, translation of these verses. The piece of bread or wafer, <clears throat> having then miraculously become Christ, the whole Christ, it is believed that in offering it up, the priest actually takes the wafer or the piece of bread and he takes the cup of wine and he offers it up in, in the mass. He, it is believed that he is then sacrificing Christ. And again, a curse is pronounced on anyone who does not believe this. 
In Catholic and Orthodox belief, this sacrifice is a renewal of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but they do say that it is performed in an unbloody manner. Now remember that because we'll talk about that later. The Mass is called a propitiatory sacrifice, and in it Christ is perpetually, they say, offering himself over and over again for man's salvation. Thus, it is in one's participation in the Mass, in the service of the Mass, and in his or her partaking of the Holy Communion, you know, you take of the bread and wine in the service of the Mass, that, quote, the work of one's redemption is accomplished, end of quote. And that's from the Vatican, too. So the Catholic person or the Orthodox person's faith is in their church's alleged ability to repeat the sacrifice of Christ in an unbloody manner upon its altars. And yet no one, even the Pope, no one can say how many uh, such repetitions are, are, are needed in order to save a person's soul. Even the Pope can't say how many repetitions are needed to save his own soul. In fact, thousands and literally millions of dollars are given to the Roman Church every year by people for masses to be, to be uh, held on their behalf after they are dead in the hopes, you know, in case there weren't enough held in their behalf when they were alive and in case they didn't partake of, of the Holy Eucharist, the ingesting of the, of the body and blood of Christ enough times in their lives, then they pay all this money so that masses will be held on their behalf after they are dead to get them out of a place they call purgatory, which is not taught in the scripture. Purgatory is an unbiblical doctrine. Purgatory is a place where only Catholics go. All non-Catholics go to hell. Now, the difference between what they say is purgatory and hell is that purgatory is a place of, of a purging fire where eventually their soul will be purged by fire and be able to leave purgatory and go to heaven, whereas hell is a place of tormenting fire that never ends, and it is for all non-Catholics. The pocket Catholic Dictionary declares, quote, the more often the sacrifice of the mass is offered, the more benefit is conferred, end of quote. Yet how much benefit is conferred, no one is able to say. According to Catholicism, anyone who dares to claim that they know they are going straight to heaven when they die, they are anathema. They are cursed. So even the Pope cannot say that he knows he will go to heaven when he dies, rather than first going to purgatory. So what about this dogma called transubstantiation? Is this what the Lord Jesus was teaching in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58, and also over in Matthew 26, verses 23 to 28, in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20? And is this what Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27? Is Scripture actually teaching us that a person has to literally eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood and to do so repeatedly, incurring more and more salvational benefit as one does so, and yet never knowing if and when he or she has done enough? Is this what the Bible is teaching? And if so, where does it teach how regular bread and wine miraculously change into Christ's literal body and blood during the Mass? I guess they would say it's when Jesus lifted up the bread and blessed it. But elsewhere it says he thanked God for it. His blessing was a thanking of God for it. It wasn't some words of magic like, you know, hocus pocus. Don't you think if this miracle was so important that Jesus would have, in some place in Scripture, have told his disciples, his apostles, how to, tra- how to go about performing this miracle? Where does the Scripture teach certain elite followers of Jesus the magic formula to perform this miracle? Well, does, in fact, the Bible teach us this? Well, let's look and see. First of all, in great support of the spiritual interpretation which I gave you at the beginning, is the fact that it is common for the scripture to use terms such as eat and drink 
in a figurative way to denote the operation of the mind and the heart in receiving and inwardly digesting truth. Jeremiah 15:16 says, Thy words were found, and what? I did eat them, and thy, thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of, of um, my mind and heart. Ezekiel was given a scroll, and he was told by God to eat it. That's in Ezekiel 2. And when he did... Uh, Verse 10 says that it was God's word that was received into Ezekiel's heart and heard through his ears. Psalm 75, 8 speaks of the wicked drinking of the cup of God's wrath. And over in Revelation 14, 8, it speaks of the nations of the world having drunk the wine of the wrath of Babylon's fornication. So it's a natural thing in Scripture to talk about eating and drinking in a spiritual sense. And as I said before, John chapter 6 has absolutely nothing to do with the Lord's Supper because he did not institute the Lord's Supper until the night before his crucifixion, which would be one year from where we are right now in our Life of Christ study. In John chapter 6, Jesus was telling the Jewish people how they could receive the eternal life which he offered them. The Lord's Supper is for who? Unsaved people? No, he's talking to a crowd of unsaved people. That's why they turn and walk away from him, why they murmur at him. The Lord's Supper is only for those who are already saved. In fact, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven when he seriously warns of partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. You know, part of the Lord's Supper is that we are to examine ourselves and to make sure that we don't have any unconfessed sin in our heart. It's for believers. And that's why Jesus first dismissed Judas before he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So even though the John chapter 6 scripture is used to support this dogma of transubstantiation in the Lord's Supper, it's totally wrong to do so. John chapter 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. So they should stick to the passages of the scripture which do deal with the Lord's Supper. It says in the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, this is a Catholic document, quote, at the Last Supper on the night he, Jesus, was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharist sacrifice of his body and blood. He did this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through the centuries, end of quote. However... So they, they still could use, if they wanted to, they could use the passages that do deal with the Lord's Supper and take them literally. So let's just forget about John chapter 6 because they really can't use that to support their dogma, but they could use the other passages and take them literally. But even when they do that and take his words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, in the passages that do deal with the Lord's Supper, they still don't work biblically. For one thing... Think about this. If the Lord Jesus actually gave his own flesh and blood through his own example that night when he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, by performing before his apostles the miracle of transubstantiation, that means, think about this, okay? That means that he actually sacrificed himself. He gave his flesh and his blood before he went to the cross. Right? Because he didn't go to the cross till the next day. So if he said, take, eat, and he performed his magic on the bread and wine and gave them to eat, he was sacrificed. The time of his first sacrifice was before he went to the cross. And this is a fatal interpretive error on the part of those who teach this unbiblical dogma because Christ clearly gave his flesh and spilt his precious sinless blood on the cross, not at the time he initiated the Lord's Supper. Also, think about this. If the Lord drank from the cup himself, which he did before he gave it to his men, does this mean that he was drinking his own blood? Of course not. Neither was he asking his men to drink his blood. Because if he had been telling them to do so, and he himself partook of his own blood, he would have been telling them to break God's law. And this would disqualify him from being our sinless Savior. Drinking blood was strictly forbidden 
by God for his people. It says in Leviticus 17.10 and in other scriptures, God is saying, it says this, he says, quote, I will set my face against that soul that eats blood and will cut him off from among his people, end of quote. So Jesus would be a liar because he claimed, didn't he, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, that he came to fulfill the law, not to break the law. So he'd be a liar if he was asking people to drink his own blood. Furthermore, if you will remember, after he blessed the cup on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, he still referred to it as the fruit of the vine after he blessed it. So they would say when he blessed it, that's when it became his blood and body. But he still called it the fruit of the vine. Now, if it wasn't still the fruit of the vine, wouldn't he have called it something like his own blood? And if he had turned the bread and wine into his body and blood, and as Catholicism even teaches, into the whole Christ, why was he still there with his men? Wouldn't he have somehow vanished away before them? and had gone, have gone into the elements. Another reason for why we know that Jesus was not speaking about communion or the Holy Eucharist, as they call it, or the Lord's Supper, in, especially in John chapter 53, uh, 6, verses 53 to 58, centers on the fact that he made it plainly clear that without this eating and drinking of himself, a person would not receive eternal life. And he made no exceptions at all to that. So, and this, of course, is exactly what is taught by the literal interpretation. But what does this mean, then, for for all those people who died before they received the Lord's Supper, such as John the Baptist? You know, he's already dead before the Lord speaks here in John chapter 6. He's died. Does that mean poor John had to go to to either purgatory or hell? And all the Old Testament saints as well? And, and what does this mean for those who have trusted in Christ in emergency situations and died before they received the sacrament of the Eucharist? What does this mean for them? Well, Catholicism and Orthodox, I guess it means that they would, if they receive Christ, all right, they'll have to go to purgatory for a long, long time because they didn't have the Lord's Supper. Or maybe they would never receive eternal life and never have a chance of going to heaven. What, was it, what would it mean to the, about the thief on the cross? Does this mean Jesus lied to him because he said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise? That man hadn't received the Lord's Supper yet, had he? You see the problem here? Uh, Oh, and would not this teaching and is not this teaching in direct contradiction to the foundational doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone? If... if, um, these people were forfeited entrance into heaven because they had done, not done some work like a, a literal eating and drinking, whether of bread or wine, or Christ's literal flesh and blood. Isn't this putting a work onto grace? Of course it is. It's putting a work onto grace. You, you, can, you believe in Jesus, but then you have to literally eat him in the communion and participate in the Mass. And this is why this teaching is completely unbiblical. It wrongly states that a person is not saved just by grace through faith in Christ, but rather faith plus the taking of communion. And anything that is added to faith for salvation is a work, is it not? This system of religion is a works system. It's a works system. And And this is precisely what they admit in the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy of the Catholic Church. It says, quote, it is through the liturgy, especially the divine Eucharist sacrifice, that the work of our redemption is exercised. So that's a big difference between that religion and what you and I believe in. We believe in faith by grace alone, and they add works It was actually the Lord Jesus himself who who specifically cleared up this issue against taking his words literally about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Go ahead and look at verse 63. I haven't read that yet, but look at it. Knowing that some of his listeners would indeed misunderstand that his intended meaning here was spiritual, 
he clarified the matter for us by saying, in this very same sermon, he said, it is the spirit that quickeneth. What does quickeneth mean? Makes alive, you know. The spirit makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh profiteth nothing. Underline that in your Bible. He says, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, it is the spirit's convicting work using the words of Christ that bring life, not flesh. Flesh profiteth nothing. He said to Nicodemus, except a a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Someone now might come to me later on and think that or claim that the teachings of the Catholic Church regarding transubstantiation were changed, that this is no longer in effect. And they will say, well, it was changed at the Vatican Council too. But, in fact, it was not. In fact, transubstantiation was reconfirmed. One of the official documents of that council states this, quote, the dogmatic principles which were laid down by the Council of Trent in the 16th century remain intact, end of quote. And the Catholic Encyclopedia states this. It says, the dogma of the totality of the real presence, I read this to you before, but I'm reading it again, means that in each species, speaking of each wafer, the whole Christ, flesh and blood, body and soul, divinity and humanity is really present, end of quote. The teaching of the process called transubstantiation is that each wafer or each host or each victim uh, literally becomes Jesus Christ himself in total. The whole Christ, deity, humanity, the whole, everything. In fact, the late world-famous Mother Teresa, you all remember her, Mother Teresa, Roman Catholic nun, said this. She said, quote, and this is in a book, In the Silence of the Heart, by Mother Teresa. She said, it is beautiful to see the humility of Christ. In his permanent state of humility in the tabernacle, where he has reduced himself to such a small particle of bread that the priest can hold him in two fingers. End of quote. I have news for you. The Lord Jesus Christ does not exist in a permanent state of humility. And he surely has not reduced himself to a small flat wafer that can be held between the the two fingers of a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox priest. Nor can he be displayed in in a golden object which is called a monstrance. I have a picture of what one looks like if you want to see This is a sunburst thing where they put the wafer in the middle of it and it sits on the table of the tabernacle. Um, And people bow down and worship before it. And it sits in the middle of the church, so that's why they have to cross themselves if you cross over the center of the church because you're passing in front of the little wafer God, Jesus Christ reduced to a wafer. Such a description or supposed display of the glorified, resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords and creator of the universe, I am sorry to say, no, I'm not sorry to say, I am bold to say, is totally blasphemous. You know, there is this growing movement between Catholicism and Protestantism. And many, many prominent people are signing the document that we don't have big differences. We need to get back together. They're undoing everything that the Reformation brought for us and many people gave their lives for. There's this other movement, which is called the Emerging Church Movement, which is very scary because it's saying that that doctrine is not important, that nobody can really understand the Bible. We just you know, need to all come together in the brotherhood of God. Well, it's scary, but it's right on target because Jesus said this would happen in the end times, this ecumenical movement to bring all faiths together under eventually the Antichrist. This is happening in our day and age. And I know I've been loading you down with a lot of these doctrines, but it's so important that you know 
what you believe and you can explain it to other people because my heart is broken for if you ever gone to South America and seen I mean our, our community is getting very Hispanic we need to understand what these people have heard all their lives and and I wish we had a Hispanic ministry here I wish I could interpret my lessons into Spanish and they're lost and they're being told the wrong things about how to get saved you know it's easy to sit here if we've never heard this teaching and, and think, well, this is crazy, but it's really, really sad. It is so sad, and we need to reach out in love and teach these people the truth of God's word. Well, to consider yet a further reason for why the dogma of transubstantiation is a false teaching, I want you to look at the words of Psalm 16.10, which were repeated by Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. These words are... This is a messianic scripture talking about the Lord Jesus Christ once he was uh, dead. God said, thou wilt not suffer thine holy one. That's speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This is a prophecy regarding the Messiah, and it states that his body would not experience corruption. In other words, his body would not experience decay in the grave. And therefore, you know, Jesus' body did not experience any decay for those three days in the grave. It didn't, it didn't begin the process of um, second law of thermodynamics. No decay, no bloating, no, none of the things that happen after death. And that was because God promised that his body would not see corruption. So all that anyone needs to do to find out if transubstantiation is true or false is to leave out an uneaten piece of bread or wafer. Just leave it out in the open on a dish. You know, the one that's supposedly a piece that is already turned into the entire Christ himself by that, you know, hocus pocus of the priest. And if that piece of bread or if that wafer does not ever experience any corruption, no mold, no worms, no decay, then one could declare that a miracle had occurred, right? Because the promise was that his Holy One would never see corruption. However, even if that would happen, which it wouldn't, but even if that would happen, it's still, transubstantiation would still remain unbiblical. As already mentioned, once the bread and wine become Christ, we um, are they are told that when the priest offers up these elements in, in, the sacrif- in the mass, he is offering them up as a sacrifice to the Father, to God the Father. The New Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, each time mass is offered, the sacrifice of Christ is repeated. A new sacrifice is not offered, but by divine power, one and the same sacrifice is repeated. In the Mass, Christ continues to offer himself to the Father as he did on the cross, end of quote. However, they also say that this same sacrifice of Christ on the cross is done, remember I told you this, in an unbloody manner, obviously because you don't see any blood, real blood. The the bread doesn't bleed. The wine really still looks like Wine. So they say it's done in a, quote, unbloody manner under the appearance of bread and wine. So I want to ask this question. How could there be an unbloody repetition of a scene that was so extremely bloody? Do you know how bloody the cross was? Do you know how bloody our Savior was on the cross? And that's not explained. Furthermore, how an unbloody, how could an unbloody sacrifice do anything to advance one's redemption or salvation when the Bible clearly states that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission? That, too, is left unexplained. But the most blasphemous part of the teaching of transubstantiation is that it repeats the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross literally thousands of times every day. Every day, Mass is being held in thousands of churches across this world. Every time a Mass is held, the Lord Jesus is offered up as, quote, the victim to God, 
the man, this is, this is blasphemously t- treating the Lord Jesus Christ as the continuing suffering servant. They, if you'll notice, these same churches continue also to keep him nailed to a cross, do they not? These are the churches where a crucifix is displayed instead of what you find in Protestant churches. I remember the first time I went to a Protestant church, and I thought, oh, the cross is there. Jesus isn't hanging on it. But you see, Satan is so happy with this teaching because it keeps Jesus perpetually on the cross. But I don't know about you. (laughs) I do know about you, I think, or you wouldn't be here. But I serve a risen Savior. That cross is empty, praise the Lord. The tomb is empty, praise the Lord. This This is doctrine that makes Satan so happy. And we don't want to make Satan happy. We need to pull people out of this terrible, terrible doctrine and, and, and the, whole, the whole system. You know, we love the people, don't we? But I can tell you, I hate the system. The Lord Jesus is absolutely not a continually dying victim. Rather, he is the living, resurrected, glorified victor. He's not the victim, he's the victor. We serve a living Savior who's not, his sacrifice is not um, replicated in millions and millions of of, uh, his body and blood are not replicated in millions and millions of pieces of of, uh, bread and wafers across the earth. This other erroneous teaching denies the Lord's own words upon the cross when he said what? It is finished. It stands in direct contradiction to the teaching of the book of Hebrews, which says very clearly that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Those who teach the repeated sacrifice of Jesus Christ through the drinking and eating of wine and bread do so in blatant contradiction to his one-time sacrifice. He was not to be offered repeatedly, for it is appointed unto men once to die. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. It says in Hebrews 9, 25 to 28. Those in any church who believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ should be continually renewed in the Mass or in the liturgy or in the Eucharist crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Those are the words of Hebrews 6.6. 6. Totally unbiblical. Totally unbiblical. But let's look at verses 59 to 71. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you or scandalize you? Now remember, at this point, he had many disciples. We're not just talking about his twelve. He says, Does this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? You know what that is? That's a prophecy of his ascension. So, you know, he's already said he came from heaven. Here he's talking about giving his flesh for the life of the world. And now he says he's going to ascend back up to where he was before. So in all this, he's teaching his resurrection, I mean his death, and his resurrection and ascension. This is, he knew what was going to happen. It was all planned beforehand. He says, and here we already talked about verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. Of course, he can always read the heart of every man. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Verse 66, one of the saddest verses in the Bible From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the 
words of eternal life. Notice that? The words of eternal life, not the flesh and blood of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Peter got it. Good thing for that storm the night before, right? Peter had learned a lot. He says, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great confession. That's one of those times I'm really, really proud of Peter. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Well, all this, just very simply, I'm going to say this in a couple paragraphs here. All this that Jesus had spoken in the Bread of Life sermon was just too difficult for most of his listeners. His words offended his Jewish listeners because many of them, unfortunately, also mistakenly took his words literally. Others just didn't like to hear him talk about his death. Most probably couldn't even get past his claims to deity. You know, all the times he said he had come from heaven and that God was his father, etc. They couldn't even, they couldn't get past that, so they couldn't even really hear at all what he was trying to say. So the crowd dispersed. And even many of his one-time disciples, those who were learning from him, following him everywhere he went, we are told they also left him, walked no more with him. But all of this was no surprise to Jesus. It didn't change his plans one bit. He was saddened, of course, for their sakes, but he had known from the beginning those whose hearts would be shut against him. Well, following the departure of the others, the Lord then turned to his small band of 12 men, and he asked them if they, too, would desert him. He said, will ye also go away? Now, of course, he already knew that 11 of them would never desert him, right? But what he needed to do here was uh, needed them to make a critical decision of total commitment, even now in the face of great adversity and even in the face of knowing that he had turned down the crown. You know, that which they had really been looking forward to the whole two years of following him was that when Israel would offer him the crown, he would accept it, and now he's refused it. Would they still follow him? And speaking for the rest of the group, because he was the, just the natural leader, his only mistake here that Peter made was that he assumed all of them were included in the words he said, but we know there was one who wasn't thinking the same way as the rest of them. But when Peter answered the Lord, he said, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe. See, he, his mistake was thinking Judas was in on this as well, but and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that a wonderful confession? That is a super... This is the first time that the disciples, the apostles, refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. This is the first time they acknowledge his deity. Before this, it was just always, you know, what manner of man is this? You see, Peter, who the Catholics say was supposedly the first pope, now we do not believe that, and that could be another whole lesson, But uh, isn't it interesting that Peter knew that it was the Lord's words and not his literal flesh and blood that gave them life? You know, the miracles had attracted the crowd, but the crowd was now gone, right? It was the miracles they were after. But it was the Lord's teaching, the Lord's words that had drawn Peter and the others. His words alone gave them life and purpose. And isn't that true in our life? It's his words that give us meaning and life and purpose, eternal life. The first time they referred to Jesus as the Son of God, not only did they believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, but now they also understand and believe that he is divine. So Peter had learned some very, very valuable lessons during the storm that previous night. Can you believe it was just the previous night? (laughs) that he stepped out of the boat and walked for a little while on water, and and they all saw Jesus walk on the water. Isn't it true that in storms we learn a lot of very valuable lessons? We talked about this before. I don't know where the apostles would have been without that storm. Maybe they too would have turned and walked from the Lord Jesus Christ. But they would not leave him, as the others had. If they had left him, to whom would they have gone? Who else would have the words of life for them? 
give them purpose and meaning, who else would they be willing to die for? Santa Claus? Frosty the snowman? (laughs) Aren't you glad that there really is a true reason for the season we are going into? Aren't you so thankful that Jesus Christ did come down from heaven and was incarnate in the Virgin Mary's womb, became man, so that you and I could spend eternity with him in heaven and not have to worry about a place called purgatory, but we can be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. I, thank, I pray that it will accomplish that for which you have sent it out. We know your words will not return unto you void, and we pray, Lord, that we can be a witness to reach many of the lost who are caught up in this wicked, wicked system that teaches the continual sacrifice of the one who died once for all. We love you, Jesus. Now go with us in the rest of our time of fellowship and and just uh, be in our midst, and we will give you all the glory for whatever is accomplished over there in our time together. For we pray, Jesus, in your wonderful, blessed name. Amen.